Blog Talk Radio. Well then, welcome to the show. Uh, you're listening to Being Humanist, and um, uh, yeah, broadcasting live from the wonderful confines of my home and Keith's apartment here in Central Indiana, and uh, um, uh, yeah, the crazy days of a weird spring starting up. Anyway, I'm I'm Mike, and I'm Keith. There you go. <laughs> Um, and yeah, you're listening to being humanist. So, um, I, I, I have to tell you, we're okay. This is, this is live show number four and, um, Keith and I are now doing the show in separate locations, obviously. And, um, I think one of the problems that I'm wondering about Keith, um, have you noticed that my audio cuts in and out occasionally? I've noticed it um, when I've went back and listened to the shows, um, and I get, I, I may have noticed it during the shows too, but so far it's fine. <laughs> okay. Well, the reason I bring it up is because, um, there were a few times I, uh, listening to the show intro song, I felt like it was cutting in and out. And, uh, when Greta's Christina's little audio bit, and I have a feeling that my internet connection may be kind of just a little rough. So, um, makes me want to kind of reconsider whether or not this live show thing works or if I need to up the ante and pay for faster internet service or something. I don't know. I guess that's something I have to figure out. But anyway, welcome to the show. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, uh, today uh, we've got a few interesting things to talk about, uh, but before I get going too far, um, you can always, uh, find us, um, on Facebook. We, we love to hear from anybody when we get the chance and to potentially add people to the show. Um, so, um, find us on Facebook, uh, at facebook.com slash being humanist podcast, um, and Twitter at being humanist PC. You can also send us emails being podcast at gmail.com. And, um, well, as we're doing a live show, you can also call in if you want to. We have a guest call-in number. It's 646-668-8748. I kind of wish that it was a cool number like 666 or something sometimes. But, hey, you know, I'll take what I can get. <laughs> right. So, how you doing? <laughs> how you doing, Keith? Oh, I'm I'm doing well. Just um, surviving the stresses of higher education uh one day at a time uh i'm almost ready almost to the point where i can take a little break and uh probably be a little bit more available and have my you know head in the game for these shows (laughs) i i think i've been bullshitting my way pretty well so far but um (laughs) my preparedness is a little bit less during the semester so 
Sorry about that, guys. I suppose that happens. Uh, I think the important thing is we're doing the show. We're having a little bit of fun doing it. Um, but, um, yeah, so today um, there's – I wouldn't say that there's specifically a lot on the agenda, but um, where where um, we spend an, an enormous amount of time at the, uh, the university I work at, you go to school, um, we lost – uh, three people in the span of two days, actually. And um, I thought it would be a good chance for us to talk about um, how atheists, humanists deal with grief and death, I suppose, when um, rough things happen in life and you got to figure out how to get around it. And um, you don't think prayer works anymore. Um, so, yeah, uh where I work, we actually lost a couple students, a couple freshmen, actually. And uh, we also lost a faculty member who passed in his, in his sleep. Uh, and um, I know that a lot of people there are struggling with it. Uh, we even had the local news station come to campus the other day and talk to some students who were friends with those who died in a car accident. And... Um, yeah, it's just kind of one of those rough things that you got to work through. Um, um, so in that odd, well, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to move forward with this, Keith. <laughs> um, how how do you how have you dealt with such issues? Uh, well, I can tell you how I've personally dealt with issues of loss. Um, I, I don't really think when we talk about how do, um, I guess, just to use a, a term, atheists deal with loss, there, there, I doubt there's really a sweeping um, method that, that all atheists use to deal with loss. Um, I know that I, um, I, had a lo- I had a little bit of trouble um, at first dealing with grief um, because I did come from a religious background and, you know, back when I would have something horrible happen to me, you know, I, whether I was all in or not, I would in, in my darkest times still turn to prayer and, um, it would have some sort of, um, effect, a positive effect on my, on my mental state. And we all know, we all know what a placebo effect is. And of course I, that's, that's what I attribute it to. There are some who obviously would attribute it to an actual spiritual connection of some sort. But what I learned I had to do um, in using my, I suppose I could use my divorce as an example. It's not like, like I said, like we discussed, you know, yesterday, it's not the same thing as death, but it is in essence, a a loss of sorts. Um, It's very difficult you know, there, there. I don't know if there's any merit to this saying, but there. You know, I, I'm. I don't know if you ever heard the old saying that divorce is one of the hardest things you can deal with alongside of death. Um, mm-hmm. But at first, I didn't know what to do because this was the first uh, blow that I had been dealt in my life since coming out as an atheist and since, you know, basically renouncing all things, uh, all things, uh, spiritual, um, 
it was tough at first. I, I didn't know what to do, but eventually I found myself kind of just um, trying to focus. I started by trying to focus on the things that are positive in my life, um, focus on those that I still had around me that, that, that I loved. Um, I focused on even the good memories that I had in my marriage. Um, and like, I never want to forget those. I don't want to throw those away and cheapen those because of, you know, just because it went sour a little bit in the end, you know, so I, I, it's still good to relish the, uh, the good memories. Uh, at the same time, I took grief as an opportunity for me to continue finding a purpose in my life. And I'm not saying I use that purpose as a distraction, but I use that purpose as, uh, an inspiration for me to, to move away from one chapter of my life and into the next. And for me, that purpose is, is, you know, learning more about the physical world. Um, just being in awe of everything around me. Um, but th that's not going to work for everyone. So that's why it's such a tricky topic. I think when you talk about how a uh, humanist, atheist, secularist, non-religious, whatever you want to call us, um, deal with, with loss. Um, I don't know. Do you have anything to add to that? Um, well, obviously I haven't had to deal with that situation. I know that it had to be tough. Um, um, so, um, I mean, for me, I remember growing up and because, because you and I grew up differently, I didn't have uh, a big religious uh, part to my life. There was a belief in God, but there wasn't uh, um we didn't go to church often. I mean, I went to church for summer Bible camps and or vacation Bible camps and stuff like that on the occasion. Uh, I think just because my mom figured out she could get us out of the house that way. Um, so like, um, I remember when my grandfather passed away, uh, I was in fifth grade and, um, I think everybody, everybody knew it was coming. It wasn't a sudden thing. Uh, but I remember afterward, um, I don't know that I really prayed a lot for it, but, um, I remember mom telling me that somehow I could talk to him, like he'd be watching over us kind of a deal. And I remember it being really weird and awkward trying to have a conversation with somebody that didn't talk back. <laughs> and I mean, I suppose it's really no different than trying to have a conversation with God, to be honest. Um, uh, sure. But I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, it, that one was a little rough on me because uh, not long before he passed, uh, months before uh, he showed up unexpectedly uh, to uh, my grandmother's house. They were split up at the time, but uh, uh, I had a lot of friends in the area and I was hanging out with my friends and he came unexpectedly to take us. He wanted to see if we wanted to go hang out with him for the weekend. And um, my two younger brothers decided to go and uh, I decided not to. And that was the last opportunity I had to see him not sick at least. And I remember regretting that a lot. Um, but I think more than anything, I think time just kind of let that go. I mean, it was rough not having a grandpa, but, or one of my grandpas, but I don't know. That was just that, that particular kind of situation. Um, 
Yeah, that's um, uh, the time. That's a really important aspect of overcoming uh, grief, I would say, for, for most people, at least, like the passage of time. But, of course, you want – during that passage of time, you want you want to be constructive about it, um, if you know what I mean. But I, I just wanted to interject that. I'm not trying to interrupt you there. That's okay. I think I needed an interruption because I didn't know <laughs> – I didn't know exactly where to go after that. I mean, uh, I, I have, I've had multiple deaths in my family since then. Um, uh, my, my grandmother died unexpectedly in a car accident and nobody was expecting, I mean, yeah, it was after work kind of a deal. She was leaving work and got hit. And, um, you know, um, I think the things, (sighs) that I've had most trouble with were um, uh, a great uncle passed away that I was pretty close with. And um, I remember at that point in time when he passed, I was already in the atheist realm agnostic um, because I really didn't know what to call myself. Uh, But I remember struggling with it pretty bad. And I think more than anything, I just, talked with people as much as I possibly could. Um, it was still rough, but I think uh, um, aside from death, um, I've had a lot of issues with just grief in general. Um, it's like, <laughs> Keith, forgive me. I feel like I could talk forever on this stuff, so if you have something to say before <laughs> I keep going, stop me. <laughs> No worries. No worries. I'm just, I'm listening. I think a lot of the times on ramblings on the show, so feel free to take your turn. (laughs) Well, um, my, my mother actually is dealing with, um, her own, um, she was diagnosed with cancer, uh, about a year ago, I'd say, and uh, it was lung cancer. They found stuff in her lungs, and they went in and removed it. She went through chemo afterward, and um, that's been pretty trying. Um, for me, I have the element of um, uh, at this point where it's like, yeah, when, when it's time, it's time. That's just it. Um but with my mom, there's kind of a uh, mixed feelings going on because I've had uh, a harder relationship with her over the last decade, I'd say. And um, while she is my mother, she did raise me. I have a lot of really happy, positive memories uh, prior to my teens. When my teens did hit, she... um, started having issues with bipolar disorder and multiple other things. So she was always kind of in and out of the hospital. And at the time it was really rough, but um, we just kind of moved on with it. And I think I probably, um, I, I don't even know that I really talked to a whole lot of people about it. I think I struggled with the fact that things were weird and, uh, um, I, I didn't have a normal family, I guess. Maybe that's the way I want to put it. 
Um, I remember times where she wanted me to um, hide medicine from her, like pills. Um, I didn't really know what they were, but she was afraid that if she took them, she'd kill herself kind of a deal. So I always had these things happening in the background, but I didn't really have anybody to talk to about it. So it just kind of sat in there. God, maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm using you as my therapist, Keith. <laughs> no, you know, that's okay. I'll, I'm here to listen. Uh, and, and how did that make you feel, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, um, to be honest, it was just, uh, I have actually developed a lot of really tough, um, negative feelings actually to my mom. And, um, it's been something I've been trying to deal with for the last couple of years. It's just gotten really rough because there's moments where she just, uh, uh, she craves attention and she uses illness or, um, um, overdosings on medicine and stuff uh, to put her in the hospital. It's it's almost like she uses these things to get her to get attention from her kids or her sisters, or her mother, and uh, that's something that I've been having a hard time dealing with lately. Um, and now that she's gone through the cancer, um, she's feeling better. We're kind of happy. Um, it's it's in remission. Um, the problem we're dealing with now is, uh, she's, I think she's drinking herself to death now. So it's like, I've got some serious issues going on here, man. She's drinking herself to death and, um, and she's still smoking with lung, with the, you know, lung cancer in her mission. And, um, these are things I haven't told you. No, I I wasn't aware. (laughs) That's tough, man. (laughs) Yeah. So. Um, I suppose, um, part of the reason for this podcast maybe is a bit of a therapy session for myself because, um, those are, I, I almost a couple weeks back, I almost did a podcast, um, uh, by myself because I needed to vent a little bit, um, from a situation that happened a couple weeks ago, but I didn't know exactly how to go about it. And then situation changed so I just kind of forgot about it, moved on. But yeah, now um, we're having more issues. We're we're finding her, and she doesn't even know this. Here I am talking about this, but then again, my family doesn't know that I do this podcast, so it's not like anybody's going to hear, I think. <laughs> but um, yeah, we've actually found a lot of liquor bottles that she's stuffing um, in her dresser and wherever she can. She's living with my sister right now, but, um, it's a situation where we're like, Hey, what are we supposed to do? And I struggle with it because I have some serious moments where I like need somebody to talk to, but I don't have anybody that's had this situation happen to them. And it's like, I have no one to relate to. So what the hell do I do? Right. <laughs> Uh, now you have no one to relate to regarding the the alcoholism, or just are you are you talking about the situation as a whole? Um, the situation as a whole, really. I mean, the thing is, is in my family, there's been um, a number of my family's had issue on both sides with alcohol. Um, now, granted, I don't think I do. <laughs> 
I mean, I have a liquor cabinet in, the, in my basement that doesn't ever get touched. And uh, yeah. I have beer in there. Do what? I know you. I know you well, and you, you don't have a problem with alcohol. If either of us do, that would be me. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, if, if I were to go out to hang out with you at a local establishment, I'd. And if I had the time and the non-worry, I'd probably get myself in a pretty good mood. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, I believe you did on my birthday. You had a, Didn't you come to my birthday? I sure did. Oh, and right. uh, and Holly drove me home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Man, yeah, I, was, I, uh, I was in another world that night. As a, I was feeling <laughs> pretty good, too. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Those are the kinds of things that are going on, I guess, with me right now. Um, and uh, I did. Uh, I'm, I've linked a an article from 2013 from Salon um, uh, that talks about different um, groups that atheists can turn to in in times of trouble. Now I've got the Beatles. Uh, a Beatles song stuck in my head. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. Do you have anything else to add to that before I go into the salon thing? Um, no, I mean, there was that thing that I was discussing with you. Possibly we, it was kind of a last minute attempt at a play out. I didn't realize you already had one, but I've always oh. thought it was a pretty cool little passage. Um, in reference to, uh, to death. Um, I can probably wait, but I wouldn't mind reading that. Um, I, I just think it's, I, I'm sure a lot of people have heard it, but I think it's worth reading when, when discussing this topic, because I've always thought it was pretty, pretty powerful. And what is it? I'm sorry. Uh, it's, it's a, um, passage from a guy what the heck is the guy's name? Aaron Freeman, uh, where he's discussing why you want a physicist to speak at your funeral. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Can you elaborate on it without, I mean, obviously we can't play the clip because we didn't upload it beforehand, but, um, is it something you can elaborate on? Oh, well, yeah, I, I, I've got the, I've got the text in front of me here. It's, it's, uh, it's a few short paragraphs. I mean, I can, just, I can read it. Yeah, why not? <laughs> okay. Well, this okay. This is uh this was uh, spoken by Aaron Freeman. Um, you want a physicist to speak at your funeral. You want the physicist to talk to your grieving family about the conservation of energy, so they will understand that your energy has not died. You want the physicist to remind your sobbing mother about the first law of thermodynamics: that no energy gets created in the universe and none is destroyed. You want your mother to know that all your energy, every vibration, every BTU of heat, every wave of every particle that was her beloved child remains with her in this world. You want the physicist to tell your weeping father that amid energies of the cosmos, you gave as good as you got. At one point, you'd hope that the physicist would step down from the pulpit and walk to your brokenhearted spouse there in the pew and tell him that, all the photons that ever bounced off your face, all the particles whose paths were interrupted by your smile, by the touch of your hair, hundreds of trillions of particles have raced off like children, their ways forever changed by you. 
And as your window rocks in the arms window, as your widow rocks in the arms of a loving family, may the physicist let her know that all the photons that bounced from you were gathered in the particle detectors that are her eyes, that these photons created within her constellations of electromagnetically charged neurons whose energy will go on forever. And the physicist will remind the congregation of how much all our energy is given off as heat. There may be a few fanning themselves with their programs as he says it. And he will tell you that the warmth that flowed through you in life is still here, still part of all that we are, even as we who mourn continue the, the heat of our own lives. And you'll want the physicists to explain those who loved you, explain, explain to those who loved you that they need not have faith. Indeed, they should not have faith. Let them know that they can measure that that they can measure, that scientists have measured precisely the conservation of energy and found it accurate, verifiable, and consistent across space and time. You can hope your family will examine the evidence and satisfy themselves that the science is sound and that they'll be comforted to know that your energy is still around. According to the law of conservation of energy, not a bit of you is gone. You're just less orderly. <laughs> I think that's pretty that's cool. Pretty, that's beautiful, man. Yeah. That's, that's really excellent. I've always that's, liked uh, that. I mean, that really kind of plays into, I mean, Sagan, we're made of star stuff. Um, just uh, when it's over, yeah, it goes black, but uh, we're kind of just recycled. We're, we're there. Everybody's still right. there somewhere. It's a... Uh, <sighs> That's all right with me. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, yeah, so I, we actually do have a play out at the end of the show that uh, kind of plays off of this idea and celebrating life. Um, but, um, I mean, I can tell you, like, uh, as a humanist, uh, knowing that this is what we got, is there's the element of doing everything with your life while you have it and enjoying it to the fullest. I mean, I think we both feel that way. Um, and taking advantage of things like, uh, I mean, if you don't like your job, find something different. I mean, why waste time doing something you don't enjoy? Um, figure out a way to enjoy your life kind of a deal. Um, the, the professor that passed away was near 60. I know that the guy probably led a great life. I didn't know him very well, but I'd see him in the hallway occasionally. The two students, I knew of the the girl, um, but I know that at 18 and 19, that's um, not a very long life, and it's pretty sad. And um, it sounds like they had a really good time while they were here, and I hope they did. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I really just hope that everybody kind of figures out a way to move on. It's always a really weird thing when somebody, you know, passes away or a friend of yours, you know, they have a loved one pass away or something. And you're like, uh, on Facebook, I, I want to say something, but I don't know exactly what to say. I mean, what do you do? Keith, did I lose you? Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I I didn't realize I, – I started speaking, and I didn't realize I had my microphone muted. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. Sorry so what about do you that. Do? 
on the Facebook Dude, situation. When it comes to consoling someone, yeah, um, I I tend to uh, it, it, I tend to have a hard time finding things to say sometimes, uh, and, and it's not because I'm cold. Sometimes I don't say anything at all if I didn't know the person very well um, that passed. Um, if it's somebody that I care about who had someone they care about who passed, I, I have um, I basically had just you know expressed my regret for their loss and um, if they would want to speak further with me uh, about it, I I would you know as I did with. Um, my own situations, I would probably suggest to them to, you know, try not to, even though it's unavoidable that you're going to grieve over this person, just remember, remember the, the positive aspects of knowing that person. Um, if, if you are broken up by them being gone, that it's obviously someone who meant something to you. So there must be um, lots of great memories you have with that person. I mean, I guess that doesn't necessarily follow because there could be there are bad relationships between parents and children, and the children are probably still broken up when their parents die. But you know what I'm you know what I'm getting at here. Like, just try to focus on the the best parts of your relationship with that person, and you know, appreciate the mark they left on your life, and maybe try to. Um, find a way to honor them uh, in any way you can. I, I, I just, it's, it's hard to, it, it, it's, it's, it's always hard for me. Even when I was considered myself semi-religious, it was difficult for me to find the words when speaking to someone who had just lost someone they cared about. I don't know about you, but it's always been, it's always been a challenge for me. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I can understand that. Um, uh, I was going to say, I will tell you that for myself, I've decided that when I go, I want there to be a party. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I just want there to be a party. I want people to find the most ridiculous pictures and videos they can of me, play them on loop, and um, drink their asses off and remember all the good stuff. <laughs> and, uh, my brother, actually, uh, when we worked together years back, uh, he made the comment. Uh, he's He wants at his funeral, which I don't know if it'll be a funeral. I mean, for me, they call these things celebrations of life or whatever. I don't I don't want a damn funeral. <laughs> right. um, he's uh, he's telling me he's, he wants them to play a particular song. Um, which just made me laugh my ass off. It's uh, it's John Lennon. Or well, Beatles, you know the uh, "Don't Let Me Down." <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is that kind of like a uh, play on um, not lowering him into the grave? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it had two meanings for me. One was "Don't fuck up, enjoy your life, don't let me down," and two, um, does this really have to happen now? <laughs> Don't let me down in the crowd. Uh, so um, <laughs> that's probably, yeah, we we laughed our asses off when we thought about that one. But uh, I don't know. 
I may wind up being cremated or something. I kind of like the idea of uh, having a tree planted where I where I'm, my ashes are buried or something. But uh, right. I'm hope I'm hoping that's a good fifty years away. That'd be all right with me. Yeah. Let's. Um, yeah. Um, now, like I said, there is this uh, salon article from 2013. I'm not going to go into reading any of it specifically. I did put the link in the show notes, um, but. Uh, I've heard many different podcasts talk about these different places that uh, atheists, uh, humanists, you know, nuns, the nuns of the world, the N-O-N nuns of the world um, can go talk to particular organizations and find people to talk to in these situations. So um, uh, it's got here uh, 1A and 1B. uh, There's recovering from religion and the apostasy project. Um, these are uh, one of the first pieces of support that atheists often need. And one of the most important is support when they're becoming an atheist in the first place. And one of the second pieces of the support that atheists often need. And also one of the most important is support when they decide to come out. So these are two good places to start um, at as you're coming out of religion uh, places that you can go. Um, But then there's also the secular therapist project where you can go find um, uh, therapists who, well, wouldn't have religious iconography in their offices necessarily. Uh, But you can find different places uh, that will just be somebody to talk to. Um, there's the uh, Secular Organizations for Sobriety, dealing with uh, alcoholism, um, so you don't have to deal with the AA groups that are super religious. Um, there's Grief Beyond Belief. I've heard of this one several times. So it seems pretty promising. Um, then there's Humanist Celebrants. Um, that... Um, uh, see, so not all human needs for support are about the need of help in hard times, such as grief or addiction or mental health problems. Sometimes people just need help with life. The need for rites of passage, rituals to mark the major change in our lives seems to be deeply ingrained in us. Rituals to mark birth, coming of age, marriage, death. These exist in every human culture, at least in every human culture I'm aware of. Um, <laughs> it was a side note. Anthropologists, correct me if I'm wrong. Here's what it says, but... Um, so that's a pretty cool deal. Um, then there's parenting beyond belief, which is fantastic. I will probably be looking at that here pretty soon anyway. Um, and, uh, the clergy project. So these are different things that, uh, you can look at research on your own. Uh, the links are in the show notes. So I don't know how many of those have you heard of? Uh, I definitely heard of grief beyond belief. Um, Honestly, that's maybe about the that's, only one, but that's cool. I've uh, listened to several of my favorite podcast hosts talk about several of these, so I just haven't given them a whole lot of looking into because I haven't really thought much about it. I just kind of keep going, even with all the issues I've had with my family and whatnot. I just kind of keep going. I've struggled a few times, had some breakdown, cry moments with my wife, and she's tried to help get me through things, but I've um, I don't know. Maybe I just shut it in the back and it's probably not healthy, man. <laughs> yeah. That's another, I mean, a good, a good thing that you 
you have to let yourself you have to let yourself express the emotion fully like you talking about the breakdown in cry moments those that's important i mean uh, i some sometimes when i was going through my darkest periods after my divorce the best, the the things that made me feel better than anything were was just lying in my bed and just sobbing it out you know like you've got to do that sometimes I think it's a really good release. Um, uh, it's funny because we live in this uh, patriarchal, I never really say that right, but we live in this male-dominated society where men are not supposed to share their feelings. They're supposed to be strong for their families or whatever. Um, hell, I don't even know that I've ever seen my father cry, to be honest. Um, but... uh <laughs> I will tell you since I, uh, since the birth of my daughter, I have become an overly sensitive male <laughs> and I tend to cry at the most ridiculous things, man. So yeah, I'm not afraid of it. I'd do it. I don't care. <laughs> nothing wrong with that. I think it's a good thing. So yeah, sure. I mean, hey, there's the first half of our show dedicated to sad death and grief. Yeah. I suppose we could right. move on to some cool science stuff. Yeah, I mean it's pretty cool. It's not as cool <laughs> as we would have hoped. It's still cool. Yeah, it's still cool. But, man. Um, what's that? It's still cool, man. I mean the fact that we can see this stuff that we're about to talk about is that's pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The fact that we can actually detect exoplanets is something in itself. Um. I think uh, I actually touched on Trappist One a couple weeks ago, maybe when you yeah. weren't on the show. Yeah, you did. That's you had a Greg and was it Justin? Was, was, Justin? Okay, I couldn't remember. I thought it was Justin, not, but not the famous Justin Clark that he used to be on the show, who's now doing his own big cool podcast stuff now. But uh, yeah, <laughs> another friend of mine named Justin. <laughs> right, but uh, no, uh, we we. Well, we talked about Mike and I have talked about Trappist one several times just because it's a pretty cool, it's a, just a pretty cool story. I mean, we've got a uh, a solar system that's apparently what was it? Something like seven Earth-like, or at least Earth-sized, not necessarily Earth-like planets uh, yeah. all in a row. Yeah. Um, uh, basically orbiting around it, but uh, it, it was a good, these planets were good candidates for Earth-like planets that could possibly sustain life. Mm-hmm. Well, um, there was a recent study, and that now let's let's uh, add a little caveat here that this, this, this study has not yet been peer-reviewed, um, so this is not definitive, this is not a, this is not settled or anything like that, um, or at least not a consensus, um, but it appears that this, the, the star in this system, um, is really, uh, big on emitting the solar flares. And we're talking about solar flares, the size of, uh, there's, there was an event called the, the Carrington event, uh, that occurred back in 1859 in our solar system. Um, it was a solar flare that was so powerful that, 
in according to the article that I read here, it actually uh, tricked the the gold miners in the Rocky Mountains into thinking that it was actually morning, and they they got, and it was in the it ha- this happened in the middle of the night, the dead of night. Yeah, I've heard of this. So and also they. Uh, to add this solar flare it was so large that if it were to occur today it would completely wipe out uh, all of our our satellite systems um, all of our global communication would just be gone um, so that's that's big well uh, that being said the only to stop us the, the, the reason that we survived a solar flare like that is because of our magnetic field mm-hmm. um, so what's happening in this uh, TRAPPIST-1 star system um, is something similar, but we're, we're, they're seeing these planets are enduring solar flares. Um, they had a flare that actually occurred within 28 hours of the last. And... The, the 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 sentence I'm reading here uh, over an 80 day period they clocked 42 high energy flares blasting from Trappist one, including five that were multi peaked eruptions, meaning they gave off several bursts of energy in one go. So these 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 solar flares are actually more uh, powerful than the one the one that we experienced here on Earth in 1859 with the Carrington event, and so they're so powerful that if they're um, the way they measure our uh, magnetosphere here on Earth is, I'm not even sure how to pronounce this unit, but it's Gauss, I think. Um, apparently, the Earth, the Earth's magnetosphere, magnetosphere measures at about 0.5 Gauss. So, mm-hmm. what they're saying is, uh, they're to survive the solar flares that these Trappist uh, system planets are experiencing, they would need mad magnetospheres of tens to hundreds of gauss. <laughs> so <Holy shit. laughs> basically, if, yeah. So if there w- were anything alive on this, these planets before these solar flares started occurring, they're probably not now. Um, now, again, this is these, these um, notions are completely based on um, measuring, uh, I believe it's uh, luminosity. Um, yeah, the, the analyzing luminosity patterns um, using photometric data. So this this study has to be reviewed, and it has to be, re- of course, for it to become any kind of a consensus, like, okay, this is what's occurring. It's going to have to be repeated over and over and confirmed with the same results. But yeah. It's not a very encouraging um, <laughs> development when it comes to Trappist One right now. So it's looking like our first big "oh my god, we might have found something" is probably yet another uh, "shit, it's nothing." <laughs> um, yeah, but that's you know not... what? It's a big universe, so let's keep searching. Yeah. Um, now I don't remember specifically because it's been a few episodes back. But um, I did go to an observatory open house um, a couple weeks back, or about a month ago. And there's another one uh, that I might go to this weekend if I get a chance. Um, but uh, I learned from our local 
theoretical physicist, but um, <laughs> we, uh, while these planets are there, and there's three to four of them that are kind of in that Goldilocks zone. Um, I've discovered, and I don't know if all of them are like this, but at least these two or three uh, that would be right in the right spot, they're actually tidally locked, which if uh, uh, listeners don't know what we're talking about, um, we have on Earth what we call the dark side of the moon that nobody ever sees. We always see, you know, the side of the moon has you know, the the face, the man on the moon, um, our moon, we never see the other side. It's, it's locked facing this one direction toward us. Um, that's exactly what happens with, uh, what happened with these planets. Um, they're tidally locked. So they don't, they don't spin. They just rotate around the earth or the, their sun. And, um, the way, uh, he explained this to me was because they don't spin, there's no real weather patterns kind of a deal. And it's either really hot or really cold. So best chance that you would have even had, you know, minus these uh, crazy solar flare issues uh, with living on any of these planets was probably right at the edge where the shadow, the dark meets the light. Cause you're going to have that cold versus hot and if there's any atmosphere whatsoever on these planets that would be where the weather would occur kind of a deal and you have most chance for water to form along the entire circumference of this shadow meeting light section of the planet so it'd be probably really intense weather anyway and yeah i mean you'd have to stay at this very narrow path and you'd only have (laughs) this strip that you could travel on uh kind of a deal which in itself is kind of interesting it'd be it'd be really neat to find out what that would that kind of a condition would be like if there was an atmosphere to keep anything in but um i don't know i thought that was really pretty neat to be honest then i mean the fact that we even know that that's a possibility is just mind-blowing to me anyway oh yeah it's very cool but yeah so you know we like i said we keep searching um, we might find something one of these days. We may not find it in our lifetime, but I, I, I just feel that eventually humankind is going to find other life somewhere, some or at least potential life somewhere else. Um, that, that's my hope. I can't say for certain, but I, I trust the scientific method. And I think we'll get there one of these days. Me too, man. <laughs> it's still really cool that we can even, uh, that we can see these things from so far away. So, but, right. um, Hey, there's our science part of the show. Um, and to more entertainment, uh, areas, I should say, um, are you a Netflix watcher, Keith? I do watch some Netflix, yeah. Not as much as I previously had, but um, I, uh, I do watch some Netflix, yeah. I actually still go back to Netflix and watch Cosmos every once in a while, at a, especially in those times where I just need something. <laughs> Are we talking like uh, 
Carl Sagan or Neil deGrasse Tyson? Neil deGrasse Tyson. I don't think the original Cosmos is on there. So yeah, I'm I'm talking the new one. Oh, it used to be, and then I didn't, I hadn't looked for it in a while, but that's where I actually viewed it the first time was Netflix. Okay, I may have to take a peek and see if I can find it again. But regardless, um, they are Netflix. um, You know, they do a pretty good job of uh, putting entertainment in front of your face and uh about a year ago uh they announced that they would be producing um their own film um <laughs> uh called The Most Hated Woman in America. Um this was a phrase used by this particular woman named Madeline Murray O'Hare. She thrived on the fact that she was the most hated woman in America and she used it and well she is the she's the founder of the American atheist group um that uh, I'm assuming anybody who's listening to us probably is already aware of them anyway uh currently uh David Silverman is their president but um yeah, so I found out found out about this show about a couple of weeks ago, and then I just realized it was actually on Netflix and that I could watch it. So I watched it last night. Um, how much did you know about her in the first place? Did you know much about her at all? Um, well, I'm definitely uh, familiar with her in terms of her being a voice for um, separation of church and state, but I, I haven't looked into... I haven't studied Madeline Mario here too much. Uh, she did a lot of really positive things. Um, I mean, she, um, cor- you know, watching the movie, I, I, I assume most of it is true. It's based on a true story. Um, but like, uh, I remember she, she the movie kind of takes you into, um, it starts off with her in a situation. It, it's like, the end of her days kind of a deal. And as it goes along, it goes back in time to where things started and you see how things continued through her life. So um, one of those first big pivotal moments for her was walking into her son's school and hearing the teacher doing the Lord's prayer. So, she actually, like, according to the movie, walks into the classroom and demands that the teacher stop immediately um, because it's a separation of church-state issue. And um, she made a comment at one point. It's like, you know, you don't even know who all is in this class and whether or not you're offending them kind of a deal. And she's like, do we have any Jews in the room? And, like, one person raises their hand. And uh, she... Um, she makes the points like, see, this person doesn't even agree with what you're saying anyway, kind of. And uh, mm-hmm. the conversation goes back and forth. It's kind of heated between her and the teacher. And uh, the teacher says, well, fine. If you don't like it so much, then why don't you sue us? And that's what started it all. <laughs> <laughs> so she actually decided to sue the school. And um, they, that's what kind of, that's what, I think it went all the way to the Supreme Court, if I'm not mistaken. And um, that's what, um, yeah, basically said, hey, teachers cannot lead prayer in school. So, um, and in the movie, it it also does stress. It's like she makes the comments like, you know, 
that doesn't mean that people can't pray in school. It just means teachers can't lead it. Employees of any public education institute are not allowed to lead prayer with students. So right. you you keep things neutral that way. But I mean, if right. students want to pray, she's like, I don't care if people pray in school. They can pray all they want. They just can't be led by the employees. So that's right. where that kind of all started. And that's funny. I think that's I think that's kind of like the general uh, general attitude from from those of us who are non-religious. Like I seriously can care less. I cu- I couldn't care less if a if a kid prays in school. Like pray pray all day. Pray pray through every class if you want. Like that's it's not the point. Like our the public schools are are, are shared by the public. So when it comes to such sensitive matters as religion, obviously we're not going to want people who are employed by those public schools to be, you know, going up there and saying, well, this is a superior religion. It's so we're going to use this religion's prayer <laughs> to start our day off. Yeah. Who cares yeah. what the rest of you follow? Like, yeah, it's just, it's just, that's a no brainer. In, in my opinion, I don't care if you're religious or not. I think it's a no brainer. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, and so did she. <laughs> she uh, the problem the problem for her though, um her family life was very troubled. Um she did have two kids. Her parents I think were she had at least two kids. I don't past that I'm not sure. Um her father was a very religious man and her mother just kind of wanted to be with her whether she was or wasn't religious it just seemed like she just kept with her no matter what kind of a deal. Um, but her oldest son um, stuck by her side for the longest time. Um, he was an atheist with her in the beginning. And uh, as, as he got older, he marries an, a woman and uh, they have a, a child. And, you know, the problem with this whole situation, she's the most hated woman in America she received death threats con- constantly. Um, and in one particular inst- uh, situation, she was at a, on a radio show. And uh, as she's leaving the studio, some, somebody dressed as Jesus passes her as there's a bunch of people picketing. And uh, he turns around and says, Madeline, Jesus loves you. And she responds with something I can't remember. And then he pulls a gun and shoots at her. He didn't hit anybody. They took him down, but then she winds up in a hospital um, for nerve damage, I guess, is what she said. I I don't know that she wasn't faking it. I think she had a tendency to um, blow things out of proportion. She was very dramatic about things. Um, So these things happen, but as she's building American Atheist and she's winning these uh, legal battles and stuff, people start sending her money. And she starts getting a lot of money. And it's a lot of these rich, dying old men who are atheists who are happy to see that this is happening, that she's winning these battles. So they're just sending like $10,000 checks and stuff like this. It's insane the amount of money that she's getting. They had to keep track of it. But it sounds like um, not all of it was kept track of. So it sounds like she was putting money away on offshore accounts. <laughs> and uh, so she was 
pocketing some of these donations. Yeah, yeah. And her reasoning for this, it, it was creative um, accounting, I think is what she called it in the movie. Um, but it was, you know, the amount of death threats and grief that she suffered through while this was all going on, she felt like she deserved it. So, like, her close family knew, but that's about it. And so well, yeah. <laughs> I, I mentioned that her son was with her for a while, but then he got tired of all, all the, the death threats and stuff like that and the risk to his family and situations. He left and became, I think, a born-again Christian afterward, and I think he still is to this day. And, um, well, what winds up happening is she I, – I, I don't know if I'm spoiling the whole movie, but I would recommend watching it just because it's just an interesting way to look at somebody who started a very positive, powerful thing for atheists. Um, but um, – the whole story behind her is that she, her, one of her sons and her granddaughter were kidnapped and held for ransom. Basically they were supposed to get money to the people who kidnapped them. And, uh, well, she just disappears. Nobody knows where they are. And for the longest time, nobody could find them, but they were actually murdered, um, by somebody that they knew that knew they had the money kind of a deal. And um, it's just interesting to see somebody who did so many positive things for a group who had so many struggles within her own family and had such a strange demise. Wow. So, That's very, wow. Very troubled woman. I think I'm, I'm going to have to watch that. That sounds very interesting, but okay. When, what, uh, during what time frame did all of this happen? Was it in the eighties, the seventies? <sighs> Well, the the legal battles all started in the early 60s, um, Uh-oh. and she, her son was sitting with her on her front porch um, at one point uh, during the Civil Rights Movement, and there were, this was, I think this was in Baltimore, Maryland, and there were uh, blacks protesting, marching down the street, heading to, they were basically protesting a restaurant that was uh, whites only and they had a brief discussion about civil rights and how it's you know these people are not being treated fairly so I mean like I said the woman had a lot of really positive attributes to herself she wanted people to be treated fairly she wanted people to be able to live a happy life she just had her own inner demons that she had to deal with pardon the phrase <laughs> and uh yeah, so that stuff happened in the early 60s, and then she started doing all these big legal battles through the 70s and 80s, and it was the mid-90s, I think, when she was actually kidnapped with her granddaughter and son, second son, and they were, yeah, rid of. <laughs> kind of a crazy story, man. Yeah, Definitely. I'm I'm definitely gonna have to check that out. The the reason I asked what time frame it was was um, it's crazy. When I was in um, elementary school, uh, we actually had a woman come in from outside of the school, um, and she would actually give Bible lessons. She would have like a little chart up front. She would uh, have like little felt figures of like 
biblical characters, and she would actually, you know, give us a Bible lesson. It was just something that she'd come in like once a week. And eventually, some um, some parents at the school who have they were actually Catholic um, Catholic parents who believed in separation of church and state actually uh, did something about it, and uh, the woman was um, told she couldn't come back. And I remember my parents just being like, like beside themselves that like, oh, how could they? How could they let her leave? Like this is a this is horrible. And I didn't. I mean, at the time, I didn't care. I was ten years old. But like, it's kind of funny thinking back on that, and like, how did how did my school get away with that? And this was in the '80s. This was in the '80s, uh, maybe up into the early '90s, but mostly yeah. in the '80s. I don't know. Did they do anything like that at your high school, at your elementary school? Not that I really recall. I mean, I remember that there were special groups like the Christians, uh, uh, the athletes association or something like that. I can't remember. There were always like groups that would prop up that people would uh, get together and pray, but I was an outsider, I guess. So I was never really a part of those things. Um, right. But, but those things really... are... Oh, sorry. I was going to say those, those things are like, that's different. Like that's a student group. Right. You can't really do anything about that. Yeah. See, I don't remember anything. The biggest thing I remember is uh, we would do the whole um, before we ate lunch, there would be a God is great, God is good, let us thank him for this food. Like, uh-huh. we did that little prayer before we ate every time. I think we did that up through fifth grade. But, right. um, yeah, that was that was really about the only thing that I really recall happening throughout my K-12 through experience. I see. Well, you and I know you and I are about the same age, so and we also went to schools in the same county, so I just wondered yeah. if maybe that was some, if something similar happened there. Um, I have been back a few times, and I've noticed that they have the Ten Commandments posted throughout the building, but I don't remember that being there when I was a student. It could have been. I just didn't care at the time. Yeah, I mean, it's – I don't know. I, I remember you actually pointing that out to me once. Yeah. I don't think my old school has anything like that, but it's not like it's – I don't have a problem with it, like, oh, overall. It's just, you know, you got to respect the public institution. Like, we have all walks of life coming in, and we can't show favoritism to one world view. Exactly. It's yeah. just the big – Yeah, um, the interesting – like, Madeline did really well for herself and her life. Um, she got really famous, um, (laughs) tons of stories about her. Um, she appeared on, uh, uh, Donahue show. Um, she also went on, uh, the late show with Johnny Carson or the tonight show with Johnny Carson. Um, in fact, she may have been on there more than once, but, uh, um, they play clips from those shows during the movies. So you can see what the conversation was like. Um, so she got to a relatively like, I mean, I think that there was a legitimate reason she was the most hated woman in America um, back in those, in those days. But uh, one other thing that I noticed about the entire piece is uh, she had at one point, she wound up in a debate or something with an evangelical with evangelist. (laughs) I'm thinking ventriloquist for some reason, but um, 
with this preacher and it pulled in like it was getting I think it, it might have been on Donahue that they were debating with each other but um the preacher like according to the story read things over to her and it, it says you know if we were to do this and go on tour and you know debate with each other all the time we could probably make a lot of money she like stops and stares at him like are you nuts why would i do that for you and then he's like i'm just saying we can make some money and then it goes on to show that they actually worked together for a while doing debates on a tour across the country and they just made money off of it. Huh. That's a uh, wow. <laughs> I don't even, you know, I don't even know what to think about that. It's it's just one of those weird areas, I guess. It just seemed underhanded to the overall mission kind of a deal, but maybe I'm, you know, I'm getting it through this perspective of a movie and the people who actually made it, I don't know where they stand on things, but I mean, I guess it was what it was. <laughs> Yeah. It's really interesting. So yeah. yeah. There you go, man. I guess there's a show. <laughs> yeah. It was fun. We talked a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, so hey, I gotta point out. Good. Now this doesn't count as bringing it up, but we didn't talk about our current president one time. <laughs> My goodness. That's interesting because I, I have to point that out. Let's not let's, couple... let's keep it that way. I said let's try to keep it that way. Okay. <laughs> because I gotta tell you when we were talking about Mr. Bannon earlier today, there was a part of me that wanted to make oh I'll just forget about it. <laughs> yeah, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> this is all your fault, man. Um <laughs> So anyway, um, free show. <laughs> um, I will. I won't even put it in the notes, man. We didn't do this. <laughs> but uh, no, okay. So I I did bring this up with you yesterday through a messenger, and I don't know if it's possible if we can do this or not next week. But um, obviously next week, uh, next weekend's Easter, right. and. Uh, well, you you and I had an experience many moons ago where you told this fantastic Easter story, and oh, yeah. and there's a part of me that wants to recreate that on a live show, which means that I'd have to also get you drunk. But I'm like, Is oh, okay, this possible? Well, I'm getting for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, basically, what it's like, I'll give you the gist of it just to give you a little preview. If we do this, uh, it's just like the actual story that that the christian easter holiday is based upon is a pretty it's a pretty somber story it's like it's very serious there's some brutality in this but then like we sugarcoat this holiday (laughs) by giving kids candy and pretending there's a little bunny who i mean it's just kind of like a horrible it it just they don't go together and but we also (laughs) but we now know the the origins of that easter bunny and the candy and the egg and all that kind of thing which we maybe yeah. we can talk about that too, like the the whole uh, pagan yeah. uh, pagan uh, elements and in, in in that the whole Easter Bunny thing. Absolutely, but, man. Yeah, that sounds like fun. We should do that. We should totally have an Easter show next week. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> let's let's see if we can pull this off. So uh, no, you get your story together. Sorry, and, I have uh, a little 
dog down here whining. I hope you can't hear that, but I can, but it'll be okay. We're almost done. <laughs> um, so yeah, let's plan on an Easter show. You get your story together. Um, I'll, we'll schedule it as soon as we know what day is going to work. Um, and we'll let everybody know ahead of time. And I don't know, maybe we can get a guest to come on and uh, help us talk about Easter. That would be fun. All right, cool. Sounds like a date. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, um, um, yeah. So thanks for listening. Thanks for hanging with us. Uh, the first half of the show was ob- obviously a little bit on the somber side of things. Uh, but I think we have to talk about these grief and death issues and, you know, how we as atheists get through them. Um, I hope if uh, anybody listened, they got something out of it. Um, uh, if you had any thoughts about it or any other topics on the show, feel free to email us, uh, beinghumanist.podcast at gmail.com. Um, send us a message on facebook.com slash beinghumanist.podcast. And uh, send us a tweet at being humanist PC. Um, yeah, we'll do another live show. We'll give you the number you can call in. Uh, I'd love to hear some other awesome, awesome Easter stories from people. Um, it'd be fun if people could tell us uh, when they started questioning why the hell we celebrate Easter with an Easter bunny <laughs> and, and and chicken eggs. It's like, how the hell do those two things come together with Jesus? Um, yeah, so I guess that's the show, man. Yeah, Other than the fact that we got to play out. Yeah, we got to play out, but you know, that's, otherwise it's a show. Yeah, we got, so we got this little play out, uh, it's, uh, from the British Humanist Association, their YouTube page. I actually put the link on the notes. Um, hopefully we're not breaking any laws <laughs> by doing this, um, live, but, um, uh, yeah, Stephen Fry, and he's talking about the um, human, the uh, humanist celebrations throughout throughout your lifetime. Uh, so it's pretty cool. I thought it fit, fit really well with the first part of the show in a positive light. A good way to end the show. So um, I guess with all of that being said, uh, um, I'm Mike, and I'm Keith, and. Uh, We implore you to keep thinking. Yes, as always, keep thinking. All right, man. Good show. I'll uh, talk to you later. (laughs) All right, buddy. Have a good one. Later. What is a humanist ceremony? Human beings have always marked the important events of life, like births and marriages and commemorated people who have died. We do it still today, and for those of us with no religious beliefs, it's important that we can mark these occasions with honesty, warmth, and affection using words and music that are appropriate. A humanist ceremony is a meaningful non-religious occasion created specifically for the people involved to be personally meaningful. It is conducted by a trained celebrant with the skills and experience required to bring significance to every ceremony and who works closely with families to create it. Humanist funerals bring people together to express and share sadness, but also to celebrate the life lived in a way that is simple and sincere. They are carefully written to ensure they are inclusive of all present. People often say afterwards how moving, sincere and fitting they found the ceremony and how much they appreciated its authenticity. 
a humanist wedding is a celebration of shared commitment based entirely on the unique aspects of the relationship of the couple. Couples have the freedom to write their own promises to each other. Humanist namings are reflections and acknowledgments of the joy, wonder and responsibility of bringing a child into the world, which involve not just parents, but family and friends. They are chosen by parents who want the opportunity to celebrate, but also want their child to be able to decide for themselves as they get older what they do or don't believe about religion. In an age where more and more people live their lives without religion, humanist ceremonies offer a contemporary way of satisfying the timeless need to bring significance to life's big changes.